This Week on Unforgotten. It was a warm, sunny afternoon when Kevin Gray and his brother Brian Smith embarked on a fateful journey cruising along County Road 53 in their rented gray Dodge Challenger. Kevin and Brian were clocked at an astonishing speed of about 130 miles per hour. Basically hurled through the public parking area and crashed through guardrail. Sometimes we make poor choices and we think that we're invincible. Our second case involves a woman named Sarah Hill, a 48-year-old African-American female also from Utah. This came from Manamis, which requires law enforcement involvement in getting the case in there. And what kind of handbag was this that she could fit three outfits in it? October 6, 2016, the community fell into a state of distress and uncertainty with the disappearance of a young man named Zachary Westbrook. They told him that the next time that they saw him, he wouldn't be so lucky. A year after Zachary went missing, a $5,000 governor's award was established. Hey everyone, this is Sellers. And this is Stormy. And And this this is is Unforgotten. Unforgotten. Where each episode will highlight unsolved missing, murdered, and suspicious death cases in Alabama in order to raise awareness and hopefully obtain some answers for victims and their families. Please remember that any individual referenced in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law. And any opinions or views expressed in the podcast are solely those of participants. Listener discretion is advised as some of the content discussed in the podcast may contain violence or graphic descriptions and may not be suitable for all audiences. Be sure to join our Unforgotten Patreon channel today to gain exclusive benefits, including early access to ad-free episodes and bonus content. By subscribing, you'll also be supporting the efforts of ACCA in assisting families in raising awareness for Alabama cold cases. And now for episode 17. We've been diving into some intense and captivating cases lately, ones that have garnered a lot of attention. However, today we're shifting gears a bit and shining a light on a few missing person cases that have received little to no attention, but are equally deserving of our focus. We've been going through our list of cases alphabetically by county, for the most part, and the cases in the next counties we're looking at today include one that may have been an unfortunate accident, but all three of these disappearances remain a mysterious tragedy. As always, we extend our heartfelt call to action to our wonderful Alabama community, as well as anyone who may possess even the slightest inkling of information related to these cases. We urge you to take a moment and reflect. If you recall anything, no matter how insignificant it may seem, please reach out to us through our website, alcoldcase.com. Your memory could be the missing puzzle piece that brings closure to these investigations. Every missing person case is a heart-wrenching and challenging ordeal for the families and friends involved. However, when a person vanishes without a trace and there is a scarcity of information or follow-up, it's as an extra piece of our hearts shatter. These individuals deserve the same fervent search efforts, and their families still deserve answers. So join us on this episode as we delve into the lesser-known cases, filled with hope that together we can shed light on the mysteries and ensure that these missing souls remain unforgotten. Our first stop takes us through Greene County, 
nestled in the eastern and central region of Alabama. Greene County boasts the smallest population in the entire state, with just a little over 7,700 people as of the 2020 estimated census, half of which reside in the county seat of Utah. However, recent figures suggest that the population has experienced a pretty consistent decline over the last decade. But don't let its small population fool you. Greene County is a treasure trove of historical wonders, boasting an impressive collection of 39 notable sites. The charming city of Utah hosts an annual Historical Society pilgrimage tour, where you can immerse yourself in captivating history of antebellum homes, churches, and the illustrious county courthouse square. By the way, I had to look up the word antebellum. (laughs) Oh. Do you know what antebellum means? Yes. (laughs) They're um, generally accepted as anything pre-Civil War, I believe. Um, But sometimes they kind of expand that to similar type homes in different eras. A lot of the antebellum homes in Alabama are actually rented out for events, like weddings and parties. I kind of got that impression. Yeah. They're beautiful. They are really beautiful. And most of them have those big oak trees. Oh, yeah. It's just so pretty. That's not all Utah offers, though. If you happen to visit in August, prepare to be captivated by the lively Black Belt Festival, where blues and gospel music serenade your ears, peruse exquisite and unique crafts, and enjoy mouthwatering Southern delicacies. Sounds like wonderful. Oh, I was just sitting here thinking, I wonder if they've got barbecue. Oh, I bet they do. Yeah. My mouth is watering. Yes. (laughs) However, it's within the boundaries of this vibrant town that our first two cases unravel. It was a warm, sunny afternoon when Kevin Gray and his brother Brian Smith embarked on a fateful journey cruising along County Road 53 in their rented 2014 Gray Dodge Challenger. However, that drive quickly turned into a nightmare. In a heart-pounding turn of events, Kevin and Brian were clocked at an astonishing speed of about 130 miles per hour. Holy In crap. a zone. Yeah, I know. And it was only a 35-mile-an-hour zone. I was so, so shocked. I couldn't even get out the right phrase. I was trying to say, holy I, crap and holy cow, and yeah. it came out, holy crow, because I'm just sitting here thinking, <laughs> wow. I was wondering if that was any phrase. Um, <laughs> it might be. Kind of like, oh, be. geese. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, yeah, and I wanted to look at that a little bit more. I, it doesn't seem like it was a straightaway, but I kind of wonder if the county road is, some, is somewhere that maybe a lot of kids, well, I shouldn't even call them kids, a lot of people who enjoy fast cars go. I don't know. I know some of those areas. Yep. Mm. There's a little we, strip close to where we go to hunt. Um, that they actually on the weekends will turn into like a drag strip, just about it. They'll have motorcycles and cars and all kinds of stuff out there. We can hear them miles down the road. Yeah. There's a couple of places like that around where, well, where we lived previously. And they actually periodically also had a lot of police officers out there too. Yeah. Yep. But down here with these little rural counties, Greene County's not the smallest in physical terms it's just the smallest mm-hmm. population but if you think about it like that's a lot of area with not a lot of people mm-hmm. and i'm sure the sheriff's department and the police departments both they probably are not highly staffed i would think and most because of their population 
And state troopers cover those areas where the sheriff and the police departments don't patrol. But Mm -hmm. those, the troopers are assigned kind of on a population basis. It's, they put more in more populated areas, busier areas. So even then, there may only be like one state trooper covering a couple of counties. It's my understanding, at least. I wouldn't be surprised at all. As you can imagine, you know, in a very, I I would say, hefty, um, fast car like a Dodge Challenger, they were probably just whizzing. And I imagine it would be very easy to lose control, which may seem to be the case here, because the high speed caused the vehicle to veer off County Road 53 and onto Lock 7 Road. It, It Hurdle. Basically That's hurled it. through the public parking area and crashed through guardrail where the Challenger plunged into the depths of the Black Warrior River. And I can just, you know, you can almost picture this happening. I think it's pretty lucky that no bystanders were injured or, you know, worse than injured. It says public um, parking area. So I don't mm-hmm. know if it was maybe, was it maybe like an area that was a park well, you know it seemed like it when I was looking at the map. Um, it looked like it was kind of like a almost like a launch area to, into that the makes river. Sense. Yeah, um, there was kind of lock seven. So the Warrior River has a dam, and so there are several locks. And part of gotcha. and I don't know if this is the part that's like where the actual reservoir that they consider a lake is, or if it's further down. But I imagine near the locks, they're probably you know a little more like swimming areas or boating areas or fishing areas, whatever you want to call them. In my Um, head, I was kind of picturing what we talked about with AMP Reynolds. mm -hmm. And, but when it said public parking area, they weren't in an area where there was a public parking area. So I didn't know if there were maybe more people around that could have potentially saw this. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's hard to say because we really don't hear much about it as far as that part of it goes. We don't know. Well, as we'll see coming up, you know, his brother um, does talk with people and we don't know exactly who he came across, you know, in order to find help. So that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. As the car floated on the water surface, a glimmer of hope emerged as Kevin and Brian managed to actually escape the sinking vehicle. They found refuge on the roof of the car. Desperate for survival, it appears that both of the brothers may have made attempts to swim to safety, though news reports offer conflicting accounts regarding Kevin's ability to break free from the car and join his brother's struggle towards the shore. Oh, I can't even imagine. I The, the things that must have been going through their head, you know, I just, yeah. And swimming in a river is hard. So even if it, the current, you know, even if it's in a dammed area, it's still really difficult. And I think there's areas of Black Warrior that can actually get pretty rough. I imagine. Um, you know, you never know around a dam either because sometimes it depends on where in the cycle of the dams or the locks, I guess you would say, they are because they can sometimes, you know, they can be in the middle of one of their Um, When they're actually kind of pulling water. Yeah. Um, And then the water is like almost Mm ocean-like. Or if the wind, I mean, if the wind is, it doesn't even matter what the the lock is doing. 
And being in March, it's hard to say what the weather was like, even though it was sunny and somewhat warm, it sounded like. You know, it still might have been a bit breezy and just warm for that time of the year. It might have still, the water might have been freezing. So, um, yeah, I just couldn't couldn't even imagine that. And it's hit or miss on that because there have been, you know, spring breaks typically around March or April. And there have been Mm -hmm. spring breaks where it's been way too cold to get in water at the beach. But there's Mm -hmm. been spring breaks where it's been summertime feeling. Yeah. Well, amidst the chaos and confusion, Brian fought against the currents and he battled exhaustion and fear, yet somehow unaware of his spinal injury that he received, finding solace by floating on his back, he finally reached the safety of land. It wasn't until approximately two hours later that help arrived. And as I said, I'm not even sure how he found help if he was laying on the shore and somebody discovered him or if he managed to somehow stand and walk to somebody for help, not really sure. And how long he was in the water. I mean, how much of that two hours he was in the water, we don't know either. Maybe it was something, since it said public area, I wonder Mm -hmm. if maybe people did see it happen. I I really hope so. That's how they knew to have um, help on the way. Yeah, I hope so. Although... Personally, I think two hours is too long if that's the case. But it depends on, there's probably only one um, police department in first. But, you know, two hours does seem like a long time because the sheriff's office is actually located in Utah. Yeah. I mean, it's the county seat. So you would think, but it may be one of the anywhere they were going to get somebody out there in a decent amount of time, it would be in Utah, I would think. And they may not have like a full time fire department and EMS, so it may be more like a volunteer. Mm, Could be, yeah. Yeah. Well, authorities, along with dedicated search and rescue teams, rallied together, and with unwavering support of family and friends, compassionate volunteers, they scoured the river's depths and tirelessly combed the surrounding shores, hoping to find any trace of Kevin. And days turned into nights, and the collective effort to unravel this mystery intensified. But sadly, no signs of Kevin ever emerged. The search for answers persisted, leaving authorities and Kevin's loved ones hoping for closure and resolution in the face of this heart-wrenching tragedy. God, that is so tough. It is. I mean, I'm sure that Brian was probably all over the place thinking about their choices that day, you know. And, you know, there's nothing you can say about that. Sometimes we make poor choices and we think that we're invincible and we'll live forever and, you know, we're going to have fun and nothing's going to happen. But I can imagine how that must have felt for him and for all of their family. So Mm -hmm. the anguish and sorrow surrounding his disappearance weighs heavily on the hearts of his loved ones. His wife, LaShawn, expressed her deep sadness saying, he doesn't deserve this. He's a loving person. And meanwhile, Brian, despite his own physical and emotional wounds, mustered the strength to join the search efforts on March 13th. So that was roughly four days after the event happened. Leaving the hospital behind, he held on to the hope that his brother would return. And emotions ran high as Brian shared his pain on an interview, saying, It's very painful, very emotional, a lot of stress. And 
I hope he's still alive and just lost and needs somebody to rescue him. Those emotions were echoed, of course, by Kevin's father, Lavelle Finley. My hope is still to find my son, he stated. I just, I hate it when we hear these families, you know, they're, it's just such emotion and sorrow and everything that comes through in their voices when they have things like this, you know, going on. And this is a tough one, too, because they know where he went in. Mm -hmm. They know the area around where he should be. Mm -hmm. And that's just heartbreaking because Mm -hmm. there's things in the rivers that will grab hold of clothes and, you know, are like almost like caverns that have been dug out under it. So Mm -hmm. there's things that you can get trapped underneath. Yeah. Did they ever find the car? Yeah, they pulled the car out almost, it looked like almost immediately. There were pictures in the um, articles and video um, showing, you know, the car being pulled out. So, he probably so it didn't take long for them to get that. Of it. Yeah, I'm thinking that's probably what happened. I don't know. You know, I can almost picture since there there were kind of conflicting statements, whether he actually did try to get off the car and swim or maybe he swam and then got back on the car because one of the articles said something to the effect of the last time he was seen, he was on top of the car. I and remember so, saying something about that when we did his mm-hmm. case card. Yeah. And then later articles say, you know, something about him trying to swim. So it, it might be that he did attempt to swim, but then got back up there or something. You know, it, it's very scary, like I said, to get into a river that has any kind of a current, try to swim. So you kind of like almost hope that if you get on the car, maybe somebody will come and get you before it goes down or something. Yeah. I just, mm, scary. And they did actually search the full first week, it sounded like. Um, And then for several days off and on, I think for the next week or two after that, I mean, they had helicopters and boats and, you know, everything trying to get through, get the river searched and the shores and everything. So... On March 21st of 2014, Greene County Sheriff Joe Benison stepped up to address the public. In a press conference, he announced a substantial incentive, a $1,000 cash reward for anyone who could provide crucial information that would lead to the discovery of Kevin Gray. The reward served as a beacon beckoning the potential witnesses to come forward and shed light on the disappearance. And that's, you know, you think you've heard rewards that are Larger than that. But you have to think of this tiny county. And, you know, the area probably isn't, mm, they probably don't have a high per capita income in that area. So $1,000 reward is probably very substantial for that area, that county. There are cases where they don't have a clue as to what happened and there's no reward offered. So I think that is a very good I think the sheriff doing that was very good. I mm-hmm. think that was, even if it didn't result in any information coming in, at least maybe it encouraged people who were out in the area to keep their eyes out. Yeah. So, though it seemed he was hurried and very brief, I was actually able to get directly through to Sheriff Benison just prior to this recording. I feel like we've had a like streak of good luck lately. I know. I'm I'm definitely going to call this one a win. Even though it was really brief, there was no elaboration of the case. It's still open, no change of any information. 
which is a little frustrating to receive that sort of response. But I definitely am going to add it to the short but growing list of wins that we have contacting law enforcement. Yeah, they could have not answered at all. Yep. And and for him to actually be the one that answered was kind of interesting. So I did leave a message yesterday, so maybe he knew I was calling. So. He probably caught him on lunch. Probably. Actually, I'm going to remember <laughs> that because I think this is like the second time around that time of day that I've gotten a hold of somebody. So. Kevin would be 51 as of the date of this recording. It's crucial to remember that the passage of years doesn't diminish the importance of finding answers and bringing closure to his loved ones. When last seen, Kevin was dressed in a dark blue shirt with the phrase, Syndrome Fox Movies, Kicking Axes and Taking Names, written on the back, and paired with blue or black khaki pants and brown boots. Additionally, he had a distinctive tattoo bearing the name Grady on one of his shoulders. And I wish they would have said something in there because I kind of wonder if it's some sort of nickname or where that came from. Like a family mm-hmm. name? or Yeah. Our second case involves a woman named Sarah Hill, a 48-year-old African-American female, also from Utah. The puzzle before us is a challenging one, as there is limited information available. In fact, we only have a few details sourced from NamUs. Because of this, and because we can't locate any information about Sarah anywhere else, we can't confirm she is still missing. We did receive a very brief, rushed statement from Sheriff Benison, as Stormy said earlier, that the Greene County Sheriff's Office does not have any record of her case. And that was the end of the conversation. So it's still unknown whether she's still missing or what the resolution of that case was, if there was one. Right. So important, though, don't you think? Like, it's important to keep her out in the public eye until somebody actually does come forward and say, yeah, we know her. And because we've had listeners do that, where they say, oh, you know, this tidbit of information, you know, she actually passed away or, you know. So. And this is why it's so important to have some kind of policy and procedure set up, because this came from Manamus, yeah, which requires law enforcement involvement in getting the case in there. But if they don't report the update, the NamUs doesn't know to update that. Aaliyah doesn't know to update that. So it's possible that there are cases in either or both databases that have been solved or resolved um, that are still there. Along with cases that aren't on either one that haven't been solved. True. So that is one of those things that we're pushing for in the petition is to get some kind of just standard procedure set up so that these cases don't fall through the cracks because you don't want to expend time and resources on cases that already have an answer, but you also don't want to miss the cases that don't have an answer. Total agreement there. Sarah was last seen on November 20th, 1996 in the Manchura area. She was described as wearing an orange and flowered blouse black pants with a stripe down the side, and carrying a gray handbag with about three outfits in it, which is pretty specific. Yeah. I I was a little surprised by that. I'm kind of wondering how they knew that. <laughs> I know. But did, and what kind of handbag was this that she could fit three outfits in it? My handbag's a little crossbody bag, but this sounds more like a tote, maybe. duffel. Is it like a duffel bag? That's what I was wondering, or one of those satchel type. While we lack precise information about her height, 
the range provided stretches from 5 feet to an astonishing 6 feet 8 inches. So it appears that her stature remains a mystery, leaving us unsure about her true height. Why didn't they just say they don't know? I'm wondering if there was a typo in there, maybe. Was it supposed to be 5 feet 8 inches? But you can't just assume that because you don't know. That would be a little more reasonable, yeah. I don't know very many people that are 6'8". And that's a, that's a, surely someone would know if they look. Six foot eight. That's almost oh, seven that feet tall. It's like close to seven <laughs> feet tall. Yeah. But you, you've got a point there. Maybe it was supposed to be five foot eight. Additionally, they had her weight listed as 170 pounds. Although we're not sure how exactly that detail was ascertained. You'd presume it came from her driver's license. But if it did come from her driver's license, then you would expect a more definitive height. Exactly. So I don't know. Um, it's weird a little bit and 170 pounds on a five foot person is going to look drastically different than somebody who is over six feet tall or even five, eight for that matter. I mean, that's a full right. eight inches higher. I mean, so. that's a, yeah. So it can completely change how somebody looks. And at five foot, she'd be pretty distinctive. I think at that weight. So I think somebody would have probably recognized her. You would think so. We conducted a background research and discovered a Sarah Hill who is the appropriate age with a reported post office box in Utah. However, beyond this basic information and a few possible associates, the trail runs cold. Given the little information and the fact that it was 27 years ago, we kindly implore each and every one of you to dig deep into your memories. If you resided in Greene County, the Mantura area, or any neighboring counties during the late November 1996 timeframe, we urge you to recall if anything stood out during that time. We understand that this is a long shot, but we sincerely hope that someone out there holds a key to Sarah's whereabouts. If you are a relative, close friend, or acquaintance, we would be grateful to hear from you. Your recollection, no matter how seemingly insignificant, could potentially shed light on Sarah's disappearance. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Kevin Jamal Gray or Sarah Hill, please contact the Greene County Sheriff's Office at 205-372-3242. Our next case takes us to Hill County. Situated just east of Greene County, Hill County has a population of twice the size of Greene County. Hill's very existence is intricately linked to the surrounding counties as it was actually formed by acquiring most of its territory from Greene County, along with portions of Marengo, Perry, and Tuscaloosa counties back in 1867. The city of Greensboro serves as the county seat and home to the remarkable Safe House Black History Museum. The Safe House Museum is brimming with tales of encouragement and resilience because it was within these walls that Martin Luther King Jr. sought refuge from the Ku Klux Klan in March of 1968. Much like Utah and Greene County, numerous antebellum-era homes and churches grace the street of Greensboro. Many of these homes have been recognized and honored with the coveted spot on the esteemed National Register of Historic Places. This year, on June 10th through 11th, Greensboro celebrates a momentous occasion, an impressive 200 years since its establishment in 1823. Oh, man. To commemorate, that's a long time. Yeah. It's crazy. That's really long. Yeah. 
To commemorate this extraordinary milestone, the city is opening its doors wide and inviting guests to embark on a grand bicentennial tour of more than 20 historical sites, including the safe house. But against the backdrop of celebration and rich history of Greenboro, a somber cloud hovers over the community. On October 6, 2016, the community fell into a state of distress and uncertainty with the disappearance of a young man named Zachary Westbrook. Blunt Street, a seemingly ordinary location, became the stage for a perplexing mystery that continues to haunt both residents and authorities. Zachary, a young African-American male, was last seen at his residence, possibly at his mother's, situated on or near Blunt Street. The details surrounding this disappearance are shrouded in ambiguity, leaving investigators grasping for answers. According to Aaliyah, Zachary was observed leaving his residence, but the direction of his travel remains unknown. Reports suggest he may have entered a vehicle with an unidentified person, although this account can't be definitively confirmed. Tragically, the circumstances leading up to Zachary's disappearance paint a disquieting picture. Prior to that day, he found himself entangled in a heated dispute with a group of men who harbored ill intentions towards him. They told him that the next time that they saw him, he wouldn't be so lucky. The identities of these men remain elusive, and it's uncertain whether they are mere witnesses to the vanishing or if they are possibly suspects. Regrettably, the information available regarding Zachary's disappearance remains limited, leaving loved ones and concerned citizens in a state of uncertainty. On October 18, 2017, a year after Zachary went missing, a $5,000 Governor's Award was established. This reward, initiated with the acknowledgement that Whereas, the circumstances surrounding this event indicate that every effort should be made to apprehend and convict the person or persons responsible for this probable crime, suggesting that authorities possess some information indicating the likelihood of foul play and an unthinkable act of violence. For those wanting to assist in the search for answers, understanding Zachary's distinct features is of the utmost importance. Picture a young man standing approximately 5'7", with a height of around 170 pounds. He has black hair, typically worn in a ponytail, and dark brown eyes. Notably, Zachary bears a tattoo of his name, Zachary, on his left wrist, while a bold black cross adorns the full length and outer side of his left forearm. His left index finger is deformed due to a prior gunshot wound. If you have any information surrounding the disappearance of Zachary Brian Westbrook, please contact either the Greensboro Police Department at 334-624-3902 or Hill County Sheriff's Office at 334-624-3081. Since Alabama Cold Case Advocacy's creation, we have dedicated innumerable hours to researching and networking in an effort to provide the largest platform we can to the cases we share. We shoulder all associated expenses with Alabama Cold Case Advocacy out of our own pocket, including the subscription fees for researching and production of the Unforgotten podcast to provide a cost-free avenue for the victims' families of those cases. We hope you will join in our efforts to raise awareness of Alabama's missing and murdered and support these families who have been forced to carry the immeasurable loss of their loved ones and the fight for answers. If you appreciate our mission and you are inspired to make a donation, your extra support will enable the ACCA to continue our research share the cold cases, 
and help those families know that they are also unforgotten. Unforgotten is an Alabama cold case advocacy podcast recorded in conjunction with Riverside FM, hosted and distributed by Spotify for podcasters, available on your favorite podcast platform. Intro music for the show was created by Principles of Uncertainty, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Content and production is by Sellers and Stormy. Artwork by Sellers. Credits for music, sound clips, special mentions, and any source referenced in our podcast can be found in each episode's description. We hope you will join us on all the major social media sites and continue to raise awareness of our Alabama cold cases. Until next time, thank you for listening, and remember, justice may be delayed, but the victims and their families remain unforgotten.